What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. We're into summer, a time to draw a breath, maybe take a rest somewhere, and eye what's possible for us in the post-pandemic reality. Margaret Davis Jolmetti has written a book called Bravish about how she tested herself while living in far-flung destinations around the world with her hotelier husband, Patrick. This included New York, Paris, Cairo, Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, Chiang Mai in Thailand, Bangkok, Singapore, and back to her hometown of Chicago with significant stops in India and Switzerland. You can see it was something of a whirlwind, and she made their lives work like clockwork. Margaret, many women relate to you and uh, the expectations that you were under. Welcome to Dropping In. Thank you so much, Diane. I'm really delighted to be here, and I've been looking forward to this uh, ever since you asked way back when. So thank you so much for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you. Uh, In addition to um, doing all of that, wait, there was job descriptions in your book that I loved. The trailing spouse um, and the um, minister of domestic affairs, which was spelled with a I R E S at the end. And really, you did it all. You did the budgets, you ran the households, you packed up each time. Needless to say, there were a lot of moves. You were caught up in a sweep of VIP receptions, house guests, house guests, budgets. And meanwhile, you were very alone most of the time and quelling yourself with Chardonnay. You used to have a high-flying job in sales, as an, and you were a self-described introvert in the hotel business as well. But once you started this um, world tour with Patrick, you became the, the second-in-command, and your priority uh, was your contribution um, versus maybe who you are and who you were. Did it come as an expense um, in terms of knowing who you are? You say that roles versus meaning in life. As long as I play out my roles, no one will ask me what I'm doing with my life. So do you now on reflection see the difference between roles and you as a person, Margaret? Oh, that's a fantastic question, Diane. Thank you. Uh, I do think that we all do play out roles every day. Uh, The difference for me now is that I'm awake, or at least I'd like to think I'm more awake. I'm conscious of the roles that I'm playing, and I'm making choices. Whereas back at the beginning of our journey, I was really driven by uh, people who read the book will see the Davis Family Handbook, which outlined some rules which then dictated the roles I took on. Uh, And I took them on. I still take on roles Uh, but I now know what I'm doing. I'm making choices, whereas then I wasn't conscious of of the roles I was taking on. I was Mm -hmm. filling a void. And maybe it's more mindful now. Uh, This Davis Family Handbook I I got a huge kick out of because, you know, we all have one, whether we acknowledge it or not. There's some kind of a, you know, 
criteria for every family and what the expectations are. Um, I thought um, we'd take a look at the family handbook uh, and then you and we'll talk about how you modified it. Um, the first is, how lucky am I? How did that manifest for you uh, while you were living abroad? How lucky am I? Mm. Mm. Well, I do really genuinely, I, I came into this world a very lucky and grateful person. So a lot of that is genuine, but a lot of that was layered on me by people who saw my lifestyle and you know, the old adage, all that glitters is not gold, thought, oh, wow, she's quit her job to follow her husband's career. She's going to be living in luxury hotels. How lucky are you? And I was told that repeatedly. And those are from not the people who love me, but the people who really were just looking at the surface and weren't really interested in knowing how I was really doing. They were more interested in telling me how I was doing. So that's how that came about was uh, on top of my natural sense of gratitude, I was being told <laughs> by some kind of clueless people uh, that my life was perfect. Um, and it didn't allow me time, it didn't allow me the space at the time to push back and say, this is what's really going on for me. Mm-hmm. You were in paradise most of the time. And so how could you have any complaints? How could you have any kind <laughs> of dis- dissonance with it? And meanwhile, hotels are fantasy places, right? They are places that exist in pieces of real estate that we could never afford ourselves. You have these tremendous views. You have full staff. You have every accommodation and luxury. So, you know, quit complaining. Um, but I wonder if there's a part of the dissonance isn't also that hotels themselves are a fantasy. It's not the real world. Um, and maybe you dissociate yourself from the real world and the activity of, you know, life on the street. I know you and Patrick went on trips, but is there a way in which you felt kind of removed from other people um, that maybe was a little bit loneliness making? Oh, absolutely. Because you, you, you're spot on with that, Diane. It's a, what we're doing in the business of hotels is creating uh, pleasure and fantasy and dream for people. That's definitely the goal is to make people happy that they are staying with us. So a lot of energy goes into that. And I actually love that. I naturally love to make sure people are, are enjoying themselves. So that part of it, I was all in on, but you're completely right. It's, that's not the reality of working in a hotel. That's not the reality of uh, living with someone who's working, felt like 24 hours in a hotel. So there is definitely a disconnect there. I do think that some hoteliers get under the mistaken impression that, that they are their guests, but mm-hmm. our job is to serve the guests, not to be in their fantasy. That's their dream. So, yes, it was quite lonely sometimes because I was working very hard to make sure everyone else's dreams came true and didn't at the time know to to stand up for my own dreams to myself, stand up to myself. Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard to identify them when you're, you know, all of your energy goes towards uh, enabling others to realize this dream phase. And, you know, there's no um, requisite. There's no need for you to call on yourself. You're supposed to be living the dream while you're doing that, you know, so there's a lot of shoulds in that equation of what you're supposed to be like mm-hmm. when you're when you're living in this incredible environment. The second tenet of the Davis Family Handbook 
if you want it done right, do it yourself. Now, that's a little stoic, right, Margaret? Um, you had <laughs> a oodles of, a little, yeah. You had oodles of help, and yet you needed to forge on. You needed to do it yourself. What was that like to to be so self-reliant that, you know, you came to a tipping point where you finally did have to ask for help in certain situations because it was threatening to overtake you. That disparity as well must have been strange. Uh, It was strange once I saw it, Uh, but having been really raised to be very independent, and I'm grateful for the positive aspect of every morsel of this family handbook. It's allowed me to live around the world and be, in fact, pretty brave in my life, but it's when it's in excess. So once I did see that this, you know, fairly positive, in a way, uh, adage was taken to excess, then it really dawned on me, oh, wait, wait a minute, this is, this is simply not working. And when you say that a lot of people will relate to that, I think that's true for a lot of people I know that we feel we have to do it alone. And if there's one thing I've learned, we are not alone. We're not alone. We're not meant to be alone. And it's kind of mm. a false, it's a falsehood to think that we are doing it alone. Um, and also this idea of compassion and service. I mean, you're in an environment that is just totally steeped in and reliant on service. You have, you're a prime target then for what's known as compassion fatigue, where you have so much compassion for everyone else that, you know, all the guests that are arriving weekly in your domestic space, you find out partway along, or there's a dawning awareness that you are in fact an introvert who needs a lot of space and time to herself. This is, you know, in in an extroverted world, this is also like not acceptable, but, um, you know, you get there and you, you sort of, you know, gird your loins and start to dig in that you are this person. Um, when you do, you, you, you say you already, you always started out as a kind of service oriented person. Is it true that there's a point of diminishing returns or a point where it's a tipping point where that compassion, as Ellen, the therapist said, becomes false? Oh, yeah. Thank you for citing Ellen. I'm for, forever indebted to uh, all of my therapists, but in this case, Ellen uh, Katz, who is amazing, who, as you say, Diane, identified that I don't need to worry about not being a compassionate person. That's part of how I am. But she did say, uh, and I cite in the book, when I go into compassion overload, it's no longer about the other person. It's me self-soothing. It's no longer that I'm taking care of someone else. I'm trying to keep a hold on what I think my identity should be as the perfect hostess, the perfect guide, the perfect expatriate. So, yes, that did tip over for me much, much later uh, in the journey. But it's true to be in to be an introvert in an extrovert's world. Thank you for calling that out. That was one of the biggest aha and relief moments of my life to go, oh, I, I'm just different. Uh, and I'm married to an extrovert, so sometimes I have to remind myself that, oh, he's just different and not wrong. Because sometimes mm-hmm. for introverts, it it can be too much. So there was definitely that discovery along the way. And I started to slowly take back the space I need, the time I need. Anyone who knows me knows that around 2 p.m. in the afternoon, 
probably a good time to leave me alone, <laughs> feed me a snack, and let me go be by myself for a while. So, yes, mm-hmm. a lot of things I needed to learn about myself and how to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. Self-care and recharging your batteries, it's different for everyone. And I might add that, you know, it's not just the contrast to the extroverted world. It's very difficult for an extrovert to sit down and write a book, as you've done, Bravish, <laughs> a memoir of a recovering perfectionist. And this is an important thing to do. How's it been since the book came out? How does it feel as slightly introverted to have um, a lot of stories about yourself be out in the world? Because the next tenet of the Davis Family Guide is don't air your dirty laundry in public. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> oh, well. well uh, <laughs> that one I've had to really throw out the, the window. It's the sort of the, the twin to I don't need any help, don't ask for help, don't accept help. So once I realized I do need help, as you said, none of us are doing it alone. It's a falsehood to think that we are. So once I started to accept help, uh, I did start to open up to the world. And later in the book, our readers will see, I do start to express myself creatively through live storytelling. And I do see that in storytelling, I thought people would be most interested in my entertaining travel misadventures, and people do love to hear about me riding my bicycle into a canal or in a tower with rabid monkeys. But what really moved audiences was when I shared my vulnerabilities around infertility, around alcohol, around dying parents. So that Mm -hmm. really helped me to see that my dirty laundry, the way I was raised to believe it was dirty laundry, is actually my key to connecting to people and helping them to know that they're not alone, that help is available, and that we're in it together. So luckily, even though I'm an introvert in terms of how I recharge, I'm a very, very social introvert, and I love to be with people. I just then need to withdraw. So once I perform then I need to collapse quietly uh, in a dark room afterwards. But that part Mm -hmm. has been really exciting because it's allowed even deeper connection with listeners and with readers. Well, you, you humanize yourself. You, you become human. You come out of the gilded cage Mm. of the hotel, which is all pristine um, working glory like clockwork. And there's never an imperfection. There's never a flaw. Um, That's something not to be tolerated. And yet the flaws in life are what makes it interesting. Um, You do go up on stage and I thought this was fascinating that your kind of way out was to actually get up on stage and share more of yourself, which was kind of a takeoff from just do it, which is the last tenant of the, um, of the Davis family guide. But I'm going to just give our listeners a little background here. Margaret Davis Gilmetti is a writer, storyteller, solo performance artist, and photographer. She and her husband, Patrick, have visited uh, all 50, nearly 50 countries. And your journeys form a rallying cry um, and a creative work, including two story slams with the Moth Storytelling Show. Every Saturday, I listen to the Moth. It's so much fun. <laughs> Gilmetti's solo show, Fierce, is about reclaiming her creative expression in midlife. And you wrote Bravish, a memoir of a recovering perfectionist. You inspire readers that it's never too late to learn to live your own lives 
if we dare to let go of outdated roles and rules that we thought kept us safe. I wonder about this idea of rules and what it meant to you. You, you, brought, you were brought up in a, in a rather strict environment, um, as many of us were, uh, you know, in this you know, generation before us was, uh, before baby boomers were, were quite strict, not entirely enlightened psychologically. And, um, you know, we were just supposed to suck it up. We, we were not supposed to be questioning. And then you came across this person, Patrick, who is Swiss. You visited Switzerland, and you found out that it, too, is a place of many rules. Was that of comfort to you? Did it feel vaguely familiar? Was it something that was kind of reassuring? Just have a moment till the break, but love to hear your thoughts on this. Okay, that's uh, great. And I'm chuckling a lot. I'm just trying not to laugh right over your words, Diane. So thank you for, for calling out so many of these central themes. Uh, meeting Patrick, definitely, I felt like I was meeting someone who understood my family language because he has similarly loving but uh, strict growing up. Uh, I do re- come to realize in the book that Switzerland is in many ways an anti-handbook for me because there's so many things I really genuinely crave and love, which is t- really time with family and friends, eating walking. So there are a lot of rules. I am comfortable with that, but there's also a lot of genuine connection. So it's, it's kind of a funny thing with Switzerland. It's one of the most rule-bound countries in the world, probably, but it also gives me a, a lot of freedom, too. I agree. Uh, the time that I spend in Switzerland, I noticed that coffee can be two hours long, and no one cares. That's a perfectly <laughs> worthwhile thing to do with your afternoon I'd say to I'd say to someone what did you do today oh I had coffee with a friend I mean it's just great for those of Americans of us who are driven um, but your um, take on it I think is very interesting and of course it did give you a sense of freedom to go to a place that has completely alternate rules we're going to take a break now but when we come back we're going to talk about perfectionism whether it's self-induced uh, or where does it come from and how the pandemic has made alcoholics of many people, but especially women who are cooped up at home and disconnected. Don't go away. We'll be right back. We're listening to Margaret Davis Gilmetti, author of Bravish. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. 
That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Margaret Davis Gilmetti, and she's written a book called Bravish. I think it's great that you don't just call it bravery, because that's a hard thing for us to always live up to, Margaret. I, th- I think you gave us some slack there with the ish, and and I and well, um, I think well deserved slack, because it's hard to always be brave. You were very brave. You were living a life with a hotelier, which meant that he was frequently away, frequently at meetings in the evening. And you self-soothed, not in a socially unacceptable way, but in fact, the most readily available way, which is wine. Um, And wine drinking during the pandemic has become, you know, it's it's kind of an off the charts kind of problem that snuck up on us that women in particular who are cooped up at home and feel cut off from family and friends are more susceptible to self-soothing rather than dealing with these ugly emotions that come up when you're just plain angry at why can't I, you know, why can't I be with people? Why can't I have my needs met? What about my social needs? What about, you know, the feeling of connection that you so well describe? Is our sense of perfection and the way things have to be tied in with this need to self-soothe? Are those two related in your mind? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, perfectionism. I think you, for my take, hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, why a lot of people use something outside themselves to soothe themselves. Uh, it's to make whatever feelings uh, feel unacceptable go away for many people. So I think you're right. Uh, during this pandemic, a lot of people have felt, well, you know, we're, we've just got to get through it. Uh, and or we're so angry, or we're so cut off. There, as you say, are a lot of emotions going on, and I do think that people use uh, any sort of substance to distract them from feeling what they don't want to feel. Mm-hmm. So I'm not surprised that, that uh, drinking and I'm sure other uh, behaviors have gone up during this pandemic. It's it's a way to get out of feeling what we're really feeling, and it's certainly been a time of intense emotion. Absolutely. And I think that you are an expert in this because there are feelings that were not acceptable, that you're supposed to be going along for the ride. You're supposed to be content organizing everything. Why would you need more? And, you know, it's it. You, look at the women who have left the workforce and who are now focusing on domestic affairs. You know, how isolating is that? At times when, you know, you really don't have a great support system or even, well, certainly not compensation necessarily, but even, you know, acknowledgement or appreciation for what you're doing. It's just so hard when everybody has to to pitch in. And I I wonder about your, your dawning realization that you needed to talk to somebody kind of inside yourself that it wasn't really going to be enough to just talk to your friends. And I mean, there was a moment where you kind of looked at the cosmos and you looked at the universe and said, well, help me, help me. I've, mm. got to get a, I've got to get a handle on this. And you heard a voice. Were you utterly surprised at that moment? Yes, <laughs> I was utterly surprised at that moment. 
because as readers will see, I was not raised in a religious home. My parents raised us with very, uh, very positive values that any religion would be proud to espouse, but not the, let's say, the comfort of going to a house of worship. So I was raised to believe that this is, this is it. So for me to be desperate enough to get to the point where I reached out to something that I didn't even think I existed necessarily, and I certainly didn't have a right to ask for help, and then to get help uh, immediately and constantly, yes, I was very, very surprised by that. Mm -hmm. And when you heard this response uh, from, and we, we can call it whatever we like, we can call it your higher self source, um, the beyond, whatever, it became a guiding light for you. It's telling you things you maybe already knew, but you, you need to have reinforcement about. And these are, these are um, it's a voice that maybe you'd never really tuned into before, but became your greatest ally and strength. I really wonder about, you know, this idea of spirituality and the reluctance of, sorry, very strong, um, very strong WASP families to ever acknowledge that, in fact, we are in need of help and we are in need of something beyond ourselves. Did it, was that also a lonely realization? You did have a friend who went through a similar path. Did it connect you to others to have this experience of, of hearing a higher self? I would say I don't know anyone who's had exactly my same journey, but I do know a lot of people who have found a point in their life when they needed to surrender the sense of uh, me being God. That was the big moment for me is realizing, oh, uh, I'm actually not God. I'm, I'm not meant to be God. So I completely agree with you. I don't really care what it's called. I don't try to define it because to me it's undefinable. I did have someone recently confront me saying, don't you think this is just your gut speaking to you? And I said, that's fine with me. Whatever, whatever anyone wants to experience, the big, big difference for me was recognizing I was not doing a good job running my own life and to surrender my sense of control over pretty much everything. You know, the circle of control that's, that is the circle of my arms held out in front of me right now. So mm-hmm. it gave me a lot of power to do what I can do, but I did have to let go of what I thought was my control over uh, pretty much everything else. <laughs> I love that you're so cheerful about it because honestly, you do feel that sense of control very taut in the book. I mean, you, you're going to these unbelievably wonderful places and they're aptly described and we are transported by them but you are controlling the itineraries of your guests and and everyone we've got to march up the steps we've got to keep marching up the steps even though we're slipping down and there's goop and we don't know what the goop is and now we've got our hands in the goop and you know there's a lot of parts where I thought to myself gee she's not really listening like to her physical self you know like you shouldered on you soldiered on Um, And I think that's what we think we have to do so much of the time. It turns out, you know, it's really a kind of a falsehood. And it's, as you say, it's sort of an illusion to ourselves as a God. And, you know, to surrender, relinquish that, wow, what a burden to offload. It just sounds great. 
Um, you know, the Jungians talk about spirit and um, spirits as alcohol, um, that they substitute for one another, that they're interchangeable, that the only intervention for having a dependency on spirits, that's alcohol, is to discover a spiritual being, entity, um, you know, you name it, within yourself or within your realm. And I think that once you did that, was it much easier for you to let go of a lot of roles that you'd assigned to yourself and to acknowledge some of your self-doubts, some of your, you know, constant um, scrutiny and perfectionism? Was it easier to let go? Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes, 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 very much. Once I did surrender, and you're right, I do still tend to be very much a just-do-it person. I still do a lot of things in the rule book, and I still really like to. As I, as I mentioned before, what it is now is a choice. Most of the time, I can tell when I'm really, something is sort of bedeviling me, and I feel like I have to do it, and that's a, a very old should voice. But now I have, I'm more often at a choice point, and so I still push myself harder than someone else might do, but it's because I want the experience now. But yes, my life changed absolutely, uh, and the relief I received was absolute. Once I put down the burden of feeling I was supposed to carry not only every iota of my life, but of everyone else's life and the whole universe and everyone else's success and their happiness, to hand that over is a tremendous relief. So I'm very grateful that is absolutely a moment of grace in my life that I, and it's ongoing for me. And it's Mm -hmm. definitely still an ongoing conversation for me uh, with whatever we want to call it. (laughs) So I I do agree with you that trading, uh, I put down the spirits, but I do have a very different connection to spirit now. And you've created boundaries for yourself. These uh, compassion and boundaries, I mean, it's extremely important to have boundaries because you know, otherwise you're overextended, you're burnt out, you're, you can't, you're unfulfilled. Um, you've really, you've really walked the walk, Margaret. I've got to hand it to you. You've got the, you've got the travel, you've got the self-discovery. And then the third part of the book, you take care of your parents, which is a whole nother transition in life. And one where I wonder sometimes if we haven't assigned our parents a kind of judgment over what we could and couldn't do. I mean, you kind of got to the point with your mother where you started talking to her about performing the moth, performing at the moth and stand up, and she was right there with you. I wonder sometimes, do we make up the narratives of what our parents, you know, think we should and shouldn't do, and maybe discredit them, don't give them enough sort of um, leeway to actually be on our side? Mm, that's a beautiful thing to say, and I completely agree with you uh, on, on sort of the, that's two things to me to let people be on our side, including our parents, and something I learned in a flash at some point was that something my mom had said to me when I was a little girl, and this is the basis of my solo show, was I, she said one thing, and I made it mean something else, and what I carried with me, I carried with me for decades until I realized she hadn't meant that at all. She said one thing, I made it mean another thing. So there is this, I feel so grateful that my parents were alive late enough in my life for me to be able to develop 
a genuine friendship with them to uh, ask for their forgiveness for things, to forgive them for things, uh, and to realize that they were on my side. They were, it sounds cliched, but we also, I, they were doing the best they could. Uh, I just sometimes really misinterpreted it, and I carried that for a long time. So that's another case of setting down some very weighty burdens uh, it's never too late to set those burdens down. Yeah. And I think it's so um, healing, right? You know, when you, you, you start to mm. realize, you know, you've constructed these narratives. We do it because we, we think it's us or them, our parents versus us. You know, we're not allowed. Um, we're not granted permission. And really, a lot of it, you know, we make up and or, or, or can potentially be making up. Um, it's, it's, you know, appearances are deceptive in that way. And speaking of which, at one point when you were, um, I think in, I, I don't know if it was uh, a group that you organized, but you got the feedback on yourself. I mean, talking to you, you're entirely engaging. Reading the book is, is such a, a, an enjoyable um, journey, but you got the feedback from others that you were like, you know, aside from your best, best thoughts, they turned out that you thought they thought you were somewhat aloof, um, somewhat uptight, somewhat formal. Um, it seems to me like you've broken down a lot of things here. You've dismantled a lot of things. You've emerged from a lot of things. Do you think people would say the same thing now? <laughs> oh. oh, maybe when I'm under duress. I definitely do revert to very old stories and those stories are control everything, uh, be a lady, <laughs> uh, take the high road, which I still think is a, is good advice, but I do under duress, I will revert to some very old stories, but I do work really hard on that. When someone did say that to me, it was in a sort of a personal growth setting it was a really flash of, oh, that's not at all what I want to be presenting to the world. I do not want to be perceived as arrogant and aloof. And so I, I pray for that every day to, I can be cold, please help me to be warm and cool. I can be controlling, please help me to hold lightly. I mean, I do see the strengths that are engaged there, I think, to be independent, is wonderful, but to be overly independent is a strength in excess. So I do see the holding myself to a high standard is, is a good thing, but when that tips over into, wow, now it, it appears that you're being arrogant and aloof, that's not what I want. So I, I don't think people perceive me that way now, but I do pray for that grace every day to not, not be cold. I don't. I don't think people perceive you that way in this conversation. Uh, anything, anything but cold. Um, but you know, it is something. You know, you're doing the hard work. You're you're looking deep into yourself. You're holding up the mirror to yourself. Not not many people are bravish enough to do that. Um, we have just a couple minutes to the break, and we're going to talk more about being a fixer, being there for everyone. Um, what is your job now, Margaret, if you're not a fixer? Mm. Ooh, there's where the book begins. What is my job now if I'm not X, Y, Z? That, I think, is the work of a lifetime for any of us to see where we are now and what 
what is it that, how do we want to be showing up? Another prayer of mine is, uh, I can be self-sabotaging. Please help me live my life with intention and purpose. So my goal now is to be awake in life. So I have many things that I do, but I'm much more interested at this age in how I be, how I, how I show across, and how I can be of service to other people while not giving myself away, while holding on to what I want to also do and be in the world. So I think that's a really good question for a lot of people my age. I'm 61. I know a lot of people who are finishing their careers or considering it, and it is, uh, oh, gosh, who will I be without my business card or without my uniform? And I do think it does challenge us to think, what, do, what are we here to do? What do we want to do with the time on Earth? Mm-hmm. And it's not being superwoman, apparently, which, you know, <laughs> is exhausting. It's really, first of all, all the costume changes, I mean, and all of that. It's just, <laughs> it's too, it's too, too much. I really, I think you just were extremely eloquent there in terms of the challenge that we face um, in the time that we have on this life. You know, what is the life that we, that we want to have? It's absolutely um, the most essential question. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll continue talking with Margaret Davis Dometti, and she's going to provoke us even further to think about other choices. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Margaret Davis Giometti, author of the book Bravish. And she was, at one point, either a self-defined saint, savior, or sentry. Margaret, this is a tall order. Um, I hope you've forgiven yourself some of these roles. But, you know, even if it sounds absurd, how many of us really do kind of toy with this kind of delusional thinking in ourselves and always portray ourselves as the person that has to come swoop in, be the savior, be the sentry, be the saint? Um, Of all of these, um, do you identify with, you know, you, you've peeled back these layers 
And I guess, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, what's the next layer? Because you're really peeling the onion here. You're taking away all these self-assigned roles. And when you look beneath them and find out, you know, who was the original Margaret? When were you the most like yourself? Ooh, that's a very fun question. So if I take off the superwoman cape, set that aside, put down the sword of the century, you mean all of that? Mm -hmm. Uh, I am at heart a really a fierce and creative and loving and curious person. So you're right, a lot of that layered on top of it was, first of all, those roles I thought kept me safe as long as I was as the perfect uh, daughter. People would tell me, oh, look at you, you're the perfect daughter. You're the perfect corporate spouse. You're the perfect... That was very soothing when I really didn't know what I was doing and who I was. But now that I have peeled back a few layers, thank you for saying that, Diane. I it's really true. do feel I'm, I'm just another bozo on the bus. I'm really a human being, mm-hmm. and I can feel when I tip back into particularly sentry mode. Any of my friends know that if someone is doing harm to them, uh, I will actually say, just tell me what airport to fly to. I mean, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go to protect people. So that's a very strong sense in me. But I definitely now know I'm, I'm not a saint. Uh, I don't need to be a saint. No one's asking me to be a saint. Some people did like to put that on top of me, and I have learned to say to people, please don't tell me that I'm a saint because that allows the person telling me to be a saint to abdicate their role in the situation. So I really saw that people were trying to put me in a box that fit them sometimes. Uh, and I now I, I just don't allow it because it's not good for me and it's it's not good for the situation. I mean, it's interesting. It's an interaction, right? It's a projection from others. It's it's a definition from ourselves. And you say that most of your actions then in the before were motivated by something you call preemptive abandonment. You know, fear of being abandoned. Um, talk about that for a little bit because I think that's something, that's a touchstone for a lot of us. Being abandoned, the fear of it, what it causes us to do. How do you disengage from that? How do you extinguish that? I honestly know that that's that's sort of a core wound for me. So I feel it's something that I won't probably extinguish, but that I assume will visit me for the rest of my life. I just, when I see it coming, I try to embrace it and say, oh, okay, that's uh, that's a kind of an old story, the fear that I will somehow be uh, left alone, even though I didn't have any evidence of that concretely as a child, but we all have our, you know, we all have our wounds. So I think what a couple of things have helped me is this sense of being connected to spirituality, to something outside of me. I no longer have the feeling that I can be abandoned in a greater sense. It's either we're part of nothing or we're part of everything. And I choose to believe that we're all part of everything. So I cannot be abandoned. So that gives me a lot of freedom. I also really reject uh, other people putting it on me. And I now have a voice to say to people, please don't put that on me. Uh, I, I really don't need that. And when I feel myself putting it on myself, I just try to be awake enough to say, oh, that's, a, that's an old handbook message trying to keep me safe. 
In fact, I have a very close friend who just recently when I was feeling frightened and I said, my handbook is screaming at me to be strong and brave. She, lovely person, wrote an email to my handbook saying, Mm -hmm. dear handbook, we're here for you too. Margaret's just trying to do things differently now, but we know you were trying to keep her safe, but she's going to be okay. And I found that very touching. That's an old message to kind of keep me safe that I don't need anymore. They're outworn, um, you know, outworn coping mechanisms and things that, yeah, I think it's important to recognize their worth to say that was working for me at, at so much of my life. It's not that I was bad. It's not that this is not to be forgiven. You forgive yourself this and, you know, but give it a rest with a handbook already. I mean, God, that's really, it's, it's really like a little too much. I wondered about the contrast too of you doing stand up. You know, this is a, a revelation. You know, you, here's a person who, if you don't mind my saying so, was perfectly kind of calibrated, measured in a way, um, definitely poised and in control of yourself. And then, and I thought maybe it probably took a very long time for a message that you thought to like bubble to the surface. And then you put yourself in an environment of stand-up or improv where everything's completely spontaneous. Do you find that a relief? Is that a contrast to who you once were? And how has it helped you? I think that plays completely into the question you asked previously, which is who am I if you peel back the onion? If you peel back the onion and you shear off all of these perfect this and that roles, at heart I am a a very playful, uh, creative, imaginative person. So improv for me is just heaven because I don't really care if it's uh, good or bad. I'm just having fun. It's like being a little kid. And I also did learn in taking improv at Second City in Chicago, they really have a strong, uh, it's not a rule, but they say, we're not trying to make you funny. We want this to be real. And so whenever I did a real scene with someone, you know, life is, is sometimes funny even in its darkest moments. And I really saw that and I carried that into my storytelling, the, the sense that even some of my darkest moments, I mean, when I tell a story about infertility, which is really one of the worst chapters of my life, the hardest, saddest chapters of my life, there are still some very, very funny moments in that. And I think it's, it's real. What I'm going for is real. So improv and then storytelling and solo show all uh, allowed me to be real. And what I crave more, even if I'm an ex- ex- introvert in terms of recharging, as I say, I'm a very social introvert. What I, the word I love best, as I said, is connection. So if I'm connecting with people and it's genuine, that is a tremendous joy to me. That's why I do any art that I do is in the hopes of, of connecting, in the hopes of inspiring someone, entertaining them. And so all of these things, I didn't feel afraid Um, I think it also helped that when I was a young person in my first job, I gave a presentation to 100 people at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. And at the end of it, 99 people stood up and applauded, and one man in the first row was loudly asleep, snoring. (laughs) And honestly, it freed me from the sense of, you know, you can't please all the people all the time. So I figure I'm going to reach some people, I'm not going to reach some other people, but I want to connect 
and play, I think, you know, and keep it real. This is, um, you know, this is back to the the hotel fantasy concept. I mean, you and I have a a commonality. We've both been to the most, um, I would say, phantasmagorical hotel in the world, the Waldhaus Sills, which is straight out of Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel movie. I mean, the wackiest sense of being removed from the world, and yet the most beautiful world that could be created. You're hiking by day, you have the spa, the people remember your name year after year. It's just another world. It's otherworldly. The steam comes up off the lakes. Um, This kind of place and your determination to to get beyond that and to see the imperfections and to kind of yeah look under look under the edge of the envelope and see what's in there i think it's very refreshing i think there's going to be more from you as an author what do you think about that oh gosh from your lips to god's ears i appreciate that diane and i love that we have the vault house in common because as you say it is this perfect dream, but we're very good friends with the owning family, and so we do know behind the scenes, and as you're saying with a hotelier husband, I do know what, you know, a little bit about what it's like and having worked in a hotel, so it is that uh, juxtaposition, but I, I do really, my desire going forward creatively is, uh, again, to connect. What I'd really love to do is uh, some shorter pieces, because I'll be honest with you, Writing this book and grading together, my literal journey and my emotional journey pretty much nearly killed me. It was really hard work. Uh, so I'd like to be doing more observational things. And as you said, the, the, you picked up on the word play. I don't tend to put play very high on my list, even though it's a huge value of mine. I do what I think a lot of listeners can relate to. I will do everything on to-do list first. And then if there's a minute left, I will play or have fun. So I would like to, that will be a personal challenge for me to not do so much, but to play and to have fun. That's, that's harder for me. Uh, I know it sounds perverse, but that, that's a big challenge for me. So I'd like to bring that into my creativity. I think there's a whole cult of us out there, the non-players that, you know, yearn to play. And when we are playing, realize this is just the joy of the day. Um, and, and play is an essential ingredient. You know, I had a friend that said to me, hey, listen, if you look at who's successful in the world, it's ball players, it's people playing parts on a movie screen. It's really all about play. We don't have a script here. You know, and without a script, it is freeing. Um, and for those of us who've deprioritized play, you know, get a cat, get a dog, do some playing. It is the most wonderful thing you can do for yourself in this very much in need of self-care time, right? Coming out of the coming out of the pandemic, I, I wondered about that and whether you had more also sense of feedback when you talk about connection, play, and connection. That you know, it's more immediate, right? When you're in a when you're in a stand up in a live audience, than with the book, and yet the reception for the book has been great. Um, what what kinds of things do you hear, and what have you learned, or how have you evolved from what people say to you about the book? Mm-hmm. Thank you for asking, because as a as an author, I had to really come to the realization that I I do want people to buy the book. My old handbook. Uh, message would be, no, if you just sell two books, 
to your, you know, your husband should buy one and your father-in-law should buy one. That would be enough. And that's not what I want because I do want um, to be sharing inspiration and hope and entertaining people. Uh, But it is a very, very different journey after writing the book. Writing the book was, as you mentioned, for an introvert, that's not hard for me to sit at a desk and write. I mean, I've been writing since I was a little girl. I am, a, we all know on this conversation, a very driven person. So I can put my butt in chair and, and do the job. But uh, getting a book out into the world is a very different job. I will say what's been tremendously satisfying to me uh, are the comments I receive from people, of course, from my friends. They better say nice things, but from people <laughs> I don't know. Someone wrote to me to say, you know, your journey gave me the strength to quit drinking. I really, honestly, I pretty much could lay down and and die with happiness over that. And someone else said, it gave me the aha moment I've been waiting for, and I didn't know, you know, I've been waiting for my whole life, some freedom, if I can give people freedom. So to be hearing that from readers is enormously moving to me. And I've met wonderful people like you who really take the time to dig deeper and talk about things which are, I think, really important. And I'm very grateful for that. So it's been a very different journey. Um, but it's, it's definitely been an education and it's, and it's been a joy in its, in its own right. Well, you've given us um, insight into agency, the ability to make our own choices going against the grain of what we did before. Why do we have to be playing by the same rule book? You completely modified yours. You didn't throw it out. I think that's interesting because that's not real either, right, Margaret? You know, you're keeping it real here. We have just a couple of minutes left, but, you know, you, you have in Bravish enable people to say that they can make decisions, whether it's quitting drinking, maybe it's just stop, pause and say, am I really fulfilling my purpose here? If I have the ability, if I can really survey and inventory my life, what would I really you know, love to be doing and reset the compass? That's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. And Bravish, your book, um, a memoir of a recovering perfectionist, is a book that does you know, enable people to do that and bring them the juice to do that. So we're perfectly delighted to have you. It's been wonderful speaking with you. We're out of time, sadly, but um, we'll look forward to hearing from you some more, maybe on Moth or elsewhere. Margaret Davis Chilmetti, you have uh, Twitter, Margaret Gill at, oh, so this is Margaret G-H-I-E-L-1 on Twitter, and you can follow her on Instagram, Margaret Chilmetti. Uh, and you have a website. Your book is available wherever books are sold. And um, we just thank you very much. I thank you so much, Diane. And I really do thank you for the TLC that you're offering uh, your the folks that you're in conversation with and your audience. That really means a lot to me. So thank you so much. You're more than welcome. Thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and take it from Margaret. It's never too late if you're listening to this. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.